0: Okay, this week's parsha is Vayera. Okay, so Rav Kook, which it's fascinating. You'll notice that all the parshiot, if you're following along the weekly parsha, all the parshiot are fantastically um, practical to the time. Yes, if you just read through the parshiot, you don't have to be the biggest Tamil Chacham in the world. They're very, very practical to the time. In this week's parsha, it talks about an evil nation that needed to be completely wiped off the face of the earth, right? Who is that? We're talking about Sodom. That Sodom was an evil nation that needed to be completely wiped out by God. Zero, nothing left, not no women and children, the entire thing. I think it's fascinating that it comes at this time. But Rav Kook comes along and he says an idea which I think is tremendous. He says like this, if you look carefully in the Torah, it clearly says that Lot on his own merits did not deserve to be saved. If it wasn't for Avraham, Lot would not have been saved. Why does it say? What does it say? It says in Paragiotes, chapter 19, Pasuk verse 29. When God destroyed the cities of the plain, Hashem remembered Avram, And he sent out Lot from the upheaval <coughs> when he overturned the cities in which Lot lived. <coughs> Excuse me. Then he says that why did God decide to save Lot? Because he remembered Avram. That's the verse, the way it says clearly. He didn't remember Lot and said, oh, Lot is a good guy. He said he remembered Avram and he said, oh, this is Avram's guy, Avram's family, I'm gonna save him. So why was Lot not rescued based on his own merits? It actually says that he did not participate. He was living in the city. He did not participate in what they were doing, which they were terribly cruel towards visitors and all those different things. So why was he allowed to escape? Only based on Avram's merits. If you actually think about it for a second, you could say it's like the Noah syndrome, right? The whole debate, was Noah really a tzaddik? Was he not a tzaddik? Lot was living in a city of terrible, terrible people. Imagine, God forbid, you're talking about somebody who's living in Gaza, right? And he's surrounded by Hamas militants. He's surrounded by crazy ideologies and doctrines and total cruelty. And the guy doesn't give in to it. So you should say, wow, that's actually an amazing person. He's surrounded by such evil. He's steeped in evil. And he doesn't give in to it. Great guy. But we say, no, he's only saved because of Avraham. So over here, Rav Kook says, the reason why Hashem needed to destroy Sodom, what was the, each time when you say Molek, what was the reason of Amalek? What was Sodom's, um, their simple idea and their ideology that needed to be completely destroyed? Their problem was, they did not understand chesed. They did not understand kindness. So it demonstrated the extent of ruin and catastrophe that could come to a world, to a community that does not understand what chesed is. Over here, Hashem was saying chesed is an essential idea to a community, to a people. In any ideological conflict, opposition to a particular side can take one of two forms. Number one, Rav Kook says, when you want to go against something, you could just say, I'm against it. Look, they're not kind, they're cruel, bad, evil. We have to totally oppose it. Rav Kook says that's one way of doing something, and that was the way Lot did it. Lot did not, Lot said, This is bad. I'm not going to take part in it. But really, Rav Kook says, if you want to oppose a nation, let's say today, right now, you want to oppose Gaza, you want to oppose Hamas, Rav Kook says, you cannot do that by simply negating them. You can't say what they're doing wrong. Wow, they're a bunch of murderers and kidnappers and psychopaths. We have to get rid of them. Rav Kook says, you have to suggest a new path. That's the only way to truly oppose something, is when you say, this is the wrong way and this is the right way. If you only say this is the wrong way, you're locked. But if you suggest the new way, the right way, then you're Avraham. And that was the difference between them. Lot was able to fight evil, but he did not have a suggestion. He didn't have another alternative path to say, this is the way that we're going to go. He said, I know this is wrong, what they're doing. But to have an alternative path of what to do, not. Avraham came along and said, they're wrong. But instead of focusing so much on how wrong they are, he focused on the good. So over here today, just saying in a practical application right now. It's exactly the same idea with Gaza and Hamas. If we start getting caught up in general, if you want us to be talking to the world, what we're saying on the news, personally speaking, I think it's important to speak to the world. We're supposed to be a light unto the nations, but with the idea that we are all we got, we all we need. There's a famous saying in my team, the Eagles in football, when they won the Super Bowl, they were very into that saying, we all we got, we all we need. Because every time they would win a game, the Eagles. That's a football team and i'm telling you as a muscle as a muscle they were that season what happened was and i'm telling you this whole story because it's a muscle for right now that season they had a quarterback who was the best quarterback in the league he was supposed to be mvp they had the best player on their team okay week 14 there's 16 games you play in a season in the nfl week 14 the guy tears his acl he's out for the entire season their best player and in general the way it works in the nfl that that player is essential to the whole team. He's not just another player. The whole team revolves around him. Their best player went out. So they were favored the whole year. They were going to win the Super Bowl. They were going to win the championship. Everyone said, wow, this is the team that's going to win it all. But when this player tore his ACL, from then on, every single game they played, they had a backup quarterback. He wasn't good. His name was Nick Foles. He was some... What? Who was the good quarterback? Carson Wentz. Carson Wentz. He didn't last so long in the NFL, but that year he was supposed to be MVP. So the backup quarterback comes in. He's a lanky guy. And literally, if you look at the difference between them, the guy who was the starting quarterback, huge, six foot five, very athletic, had an arm where he could throw the football like literally 70 yards. He was unbelievable. The backup quarterback was this tall, lanky, skinny guy. He, the way he threw the ball looked like, it just looked bizarre. So he came in every single game they played from then on. Which was the last two games of the season and then the entire playoffs they were the underdogs so what they embraced what this team embraced from then on we all we got we all we need which means we don't care what people are going to say about us we don't care if they favor us we don't care what they oh they're not a good team because of this guy and they ended up winning not just winning every game when that backup quarterback came in and honestly speaking i'm a huge sports fan it was one of the most incredible things i've ever seen it's not often you'll see that like this is a specific story does not happen often in sports this guy came in he was unbelievable. This quarterback came in, and when it came to the Super Bowl, he played against Tom Brady, okay? It was Eagles, Patriots, in the Super Bowl. Tom Brady played the best Super Bowl of all time in that Super Bowl. His statistics, I think he had five touchdowns. I think he had over 500 yards passing. If you know football, over 300 yards is a lot. He had over 500 yards. It was insane. He went toe-to-toe. You can watch the highlights of this game if you understand football. He went toe-to-toe with Tom Brady who's considered the best player of all time, and he beat him. Throw for throw, which means not one time. Every time he came into the game, back a touchdown, touchdown. Every time he needed to get it done, he got it done. So what I took from that is, right now, we're trying to go to the world and every time you have to fight with BBC. If you go on BBC and you have an interview, the second you step off the interview, BBC is going to say whatever they want. You see how the interviews run. We just get the clips. Unless you're watching BBC, directly from the TV, which I hope nobody is, <laughs> but if you are watching it, you'll see, okay, Bennett comes on, he has a good fight with the, with the announcer, he wins clearly, you see the clip, wow, Bennett totally put them down. But on BBC, when the interview ends and Bennett steps away, then they just talk about him and they say, oh look, I don't know what they say, but I'm imagining they say, oh look, the prime minister, he's very angry, he's not thinking clearly, we see what's happening, they're going to a disproportionate uh, punishment to Gaza. We need to have a mentality of we all we got, we all we need. This country has everything that we need. Do we need the help of other countries? Physically, I imagine so. But is that the mentality that we're going to have? Absolutely not. We all we got, we all we need. We have all the ammunition we need. We have all the soldiers we need. We have everything we need to dominate in the Middle East. And therefore, is we should there show America, our power. There, that comes from Israel, Army, we all we got, we all we need? Absolutely. Yes? Yes, like to I love it, exactly so when we come and we say we have everything that we need, that is the key the world sees if every time we're always coming and apologizing oh please, oh we're not sure is it possible we could please go into Gaza and please attack and you could please give us permission who are we asking permission from? is there anyone that's coming to help us? America is sending soldiers, are they coming right now and battling in Gaza with us? They're not We're going into Gaza by ourselves. So what are we waiting for to go and apologize and ask all these different people? We stand up and we do what we need to do, period. End of story. So the key over here is, is that to fight evil, you need to fight evil with light. We're not gonna go and say, oh, look what Hamas did and fight them back, fight them back. We're going to show a different path. And that's why to me personally, the most inspiring is when you see the way we're fighting it, if you ask any Holocaust survivor, how did they fight the Holocaust? What was the revenge? it was not going and hunting down all the Nazis. If you ask 95% of Holocaust survivors, they won't tell you their revenge was hunting down all the Nazis and hanging them. I don't think that would help them. Their revenge, every Holocaust survivor will tell you, is look at my, look at my family photo book. Look at the kids that I have, look at the grandchildren that I have, look at the weddings, that is my revenge. That is my middle finger to the Nazis, period. So I want to tell you, Nisim Mangel, yes, Nisim Mangel. I know, and I know I'm good friends with a bunch of his grandkids. Yaakov Mangel, Levi Mangel, they're with me in Yeshiva. An amazing family. He has grandkids all over the world. He specifically, because he's Chabad, his grandchildren are Shluchim literally all over the planet. They're not even talking about over America. He has on all the continents, all the countries. It's unbelievable. His, his family, from going from his home, literally is spread over the entire globe. Unbelievable. So I wanna share with you a story of how we can fight the darkness with light. This is a story that happened in New York. I read the story from the woman that it happened to. This is her writing this from her own diary. She was said it was Friday morning and she was in Rockland Kosher Supermarket, okay? She was a woman that at the time she was financially struggling and she was living on food stamps. She had three children living on food stamps. So she goes to check out She goes to buy her groceries and when she goes to the front, she says to herself, okay, she knows. She always would divide things up, be very organized. This is how much I need to pay. This is how much my groceries are. And she was very careful with her spending. She comes to the counter. The guy tells her it's $115.63. She says, okay, perfect. She takes out her food stamp card. He goes to swipe the card. The guy says there's zero dollars and zero cents left on your uh, food stamp card. And this woman had no other way to pay. So she steps aside in line. And she's sitting there and she's panicking. She's embarrassed, there's other people behind her. She has all these groceries. And a woman behind her, Oh, she said a, a very elegantly um, well-dressed woman, takes out her credit card, she says, don't worry, I got it, and she pays for her. And she's so shocked, she turns around to say, thank you, the woman's gone. Gone. Just like that. She said, she went outside, she went to the quiet street and she broke down crying, sobbing. And she said that that moment, was a buildup of a hugely terrible chain of events in her life. What ended up happening was to her, she explains, she grew up an orphan. And when she was growing up, her parents, both her parents passed away, and she was taken in by her aunt and uncle. And her aunt and uncle were very rigid, strict uh, foster parents. And they were good, meaning they cared about her, and they loved her. They were not abusive, she said, but they were very rigid. Until she was 18 years old, she had to be in bed 8 PM, no exceptions. It was very hard for her to be in that environment that she always dreamed how she would get older, she would be 21, she would get her own place and she would live her own free life because she was a very free spirited person. She meets a guy named Labe, and Labe is a gentle, kind, responsible person. And she's so excited. They're going to build a home together. Sure enough, they get married. Everything is amazing. One day she looks in their joint bank account and she sees there's a very large chunk of money that's missing. So she asks her husband what happened. He was a little bit evasive. She ends up finding out that he has a gambling problem. And sure enough, this problem, what she found out at that time, she thought maybe he could go to a professional. She started asking experts. This problem ended up deteriorating everything. They had three children together. He gambled away all their money, put them into debt. And then one day he tells her, I don't want to be tied down anymore. It's too much for me and everything runs away, disappears. Now she has three children. She has nothing. So she, for her, felt she was abandoned by everything. She dropped, she was a firm woman, she dropped everything. She felt completely abandoned by the world. But she knew for a kid, she had to put her life together. So she went and she found out about Medicaid and about food stamps and about government help. And she got a job, she went back to part-time university at the same time to try to make more money for her family. She tried to put everything together. And then all of a sudden, this moment happens in the grocery store where there's nothing left on her food stamp card. She thought there was, she was shocked. And she literally felt in that moment, just like, that was the pit, that was the bottom, that was rock bottom. But she said when that woman paid for her, all of a sudden she felt like literally rock bottom and all of a sudden like absolutely out of the depth. She felt a complete paradigm shift, she felt hope. She said that moment that that random woman paid for her, she said, oh, you could pay me back and she was gone. Meaning the woman just gave her the money, no problem. She felt a complete paradigm shift. And the reason why I'm saying this now is because right now we have this type of opportunity. You know, there's someone, I'm not gonna say any names, but there's someone in the community that um, he's in Milouim and he has a business. He's not a poor man. I know him personally, he's not a poor man, he does well. But now he's in miluim. his whole business is suffering. So someone else in the community I know, without him going around and asking, because he's not the type of guy that would ask. Like I said, he's a well-to-do person. He's, he's not gonna go on asking people for money. But someone else in the community realized that he didn't have the funds because now he's in Miloim, he's in the army. So who's, how's he making any money in his business? He decided to gather the capital to be able to pay him upfront for all the stuff, the, you know, uh, a prepayment for the work and the business that he does. So I think these little things, it doesn't have to be somebody who's in complete poverty or somebody, these little things in a time of war have a tremendous, tremendous impact of the little moments, not just the big donations and the big organizations and the people are saying how we're getting essential you know, weapons for the IDF and how we're gonna get them to the front lines. Those things are all very important, but also just the little things. Like I heard a yeshiva, they have a mitzvah. I forgot somewhere in Israel, they have a mitzvah now. You have to say Boker Tov to 10 people. You have to say good morning to 10 people. And it sounds funny, but I'll tell you honestly, generally speaking, I say good morning to people now, they get very excited. Random people walking the street near me. you say Boker Tov, all of a sudden they're like, ah, oh, You know, good morning. They get very excited. These little things, they show you how a community comes together in a time of distress. Now is the time that community is so important because it's not just the tefillah and it's not just the charity. It's the way that we interact with each other. That is the key right now. That is what pushes us through. So God willing, we'll all have the chance to do that. God willing, nobody's going to need it. God willing, we'll see complete victory very soon and we'll be celebrating very soon. But until then, we got to get it done.